Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Kevin Maxey from Super Rica coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by, I'm just going to say it, my favorite co-host, Felice Sloan from Urban Swank. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, 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 hey. I am so happy to be back. I'm good, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Let's dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, sad news. Kitchen 713 is no more. The acclaimed... Global Soul Food Restaurant, led by James Haywood and Ross Coleman, served its last meal about a week ago. They, uh, James called me, and I thought we were going to talk about this new West African tasty menu that they had been working on that that Matt Harrison and I talked about on the show a few weeks ago. I rolled, When that was going to roll out to the public, and the phone rang, and he's like, uh, yeah, we're closing tomorrow and I said well it was a Monday and I said well you're not you're not open on Mondays right he's like no so it's like so you closed yesterday he's like yes (laughs) uh Felice let let me just start with this I I, as I recall you're a Kitchen 713 fan I am a Kitchen 713 fan however I am not surprised okay why are you not so I think from the from an outsider's perspective, this is a restaurant that got good press. Yes. And had really good food. Yes. But you're not surprised that it closed. So all those things are correct. Yes. But um, I think that there is another major component that's missing, especially with all the good food and all the things that are going on in Houston's food scene right now. And that is the experience consistency with customer service. That is not there. No, and it and to be accurate, when they when they had that little one on Canal Street in the second ward, and they served you basically everything. Yes, that was a that was a good experience, but the space was problematic. It was too small. Right. They they couldn't. They weren't even allowed to let their customers bring alcohol in because it was owned by a minister who had strong views on that topic. Right. So they moved to this bigger space on Washington Avenue, full bar, beer, wine, cocktails, the whole thing. But they never really got the front of house component correct. Never. From the beginning, every time I go, it's literally like a cringe moment where I'm like, ooh, I want this from Kitchen 713. And I literally have to mentally prepare myself to just think about the food because I'm probably going to either be irritated or walk out, you know, mad. So I think that's a problem. <laughs> and the space was really very ambitious in considering trying to staff it and you know how many tables you have to turn all doing all the math the business side of it so with that going on you gotta you gotta have good customer service you have to um and when i say good customer service where i'm not i'm place an order short of the fried chicken it shouldn't take 20 minutes for me to get a drink and appetizer or, you know, something like that. And then no one ever comes back. And I, just with what's going on right now, 
that is not going to be acceptable for customers to continue to go back. They will go somewhere else and they'll talk about it. Love Kitchen 713. And you're like, well, why aren't you going? And <laughs> right. When's the last time? <laughs> right. time last That's time the you- famous. <laughs> when's the last time you ate there? Right. Oh, I haven't been in a year. Well, why not? Well, you know, X, Sometimes y, and they can't Z. even tell you, though, right? Like, yeah. they're like, I, I don't know. I just go. So then you ask, why do you go to this other spot? And they can tell you, oh, it's good food. I love the experience, all that. No one that I know that loves 713 ever says that. Right. It caught on as a brunch spot, but it never really caught on during the week for lunch or dinner. Right. And obviously that really hurt. And so, you know, that meant that essentially James and Ross were there all the time. And when you're not making a ton of money, it's not really sustainable. Right. So they're going to take some time off. Think about uh, a new concept and a new name. And they haven't really, I think they're going to do, they, they like those West African flavors. I think that's going to be a pop-up more than a restaurant. Like they'll, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they showed up for a couple of weeks at Vinegar Hill and did that menu yeah. or, or it glitter with a West African menu or something like that. My guess, and I, I haven't talked to them about this. And, and so I'm, let me, let me just be clear that this is just my opinion. I would take that fried chicken that was killer and I would build a fast casual restaurant around that and go from there. I agree. And then I also think, so since we're, you know, figuring out their future, I think that's a great idea. And I think that they need to bring on a consultant or someone, you know, that can consult them with the whole concept and the next level because they're chefs, right? So they do back of the house very well. I don't know who's, um, help them with the front of the house. So they may have someone, but, you know, play to your strengths. I think that they, if they get that part correct, they'll knock it out of the park every time. Yeah, I, let me say this. I know a front of the house person that's been talking to them and trying to give them some advice. I don't know whether he's going to come on board with them in a permanent way. So I don't want to, I don't want to out him quite yet. I think he should. So I'm not, I'm not going to do it, but he knows who he is. He's welcome to come on the he's welcome to come on the show anytime and and talk about his role with them if he'd like. Right. But I will say they're aware it's it's something they're aware of. Okay. And it's I think whatever they do next, it's something that will it will be accounted for in a way that it never was at Kitchen Seven One Three. That's awesome. I I wish them luck because I really like the guys and I think they make wonderful food. All right. And then topic number two. There's been a, a we're in the we're in the crunch of fall opening season right now, and so I just kind of want to briefly note the there are places that are actively opening their doors in the last week or so, and just you know kind of quick hit. So the first one is twenty eight forty at Duquesa. This is a new lunch option in the Galleria area. Duquesa is an event venue on Chimney Rock, just south of Westheimer. It's very close to the Gal Media office. I I got I was made aware of this by the general manager Sh- Shannon Svetlik, who I knew as Shannon Ward when she was one of the floor managers during the opening of Weights and Measures. And the chef is Adrian de la Cerda, who some people may know from the Ladybird food truck back in the day. They were kind of mm-hmm. a pioneer in the whole bringing the whole avocado toast thing to Houston. Right. And then he showed up uh 
on the opening crew for Cavo Coffee, where he did a whole bunch of toasts and some other stuff. Talented guy, always been kind of behind the scenes, you know, consulting or working for other people. This is this is his first real opportunity to to step out on his own. And it's you know it's pretty straightforward food, right? They have a burger, they have avocado toast, of course, they have shrimp remoulade salad with fried green tomatoes. It's you know they have a a bavette steak. There's some other salad options. It's not it's not groundbreaking stuff, but it's a nice environment. And I just think that, you know, we're always kind of looking for a new lunch spot, especially around the office. So I'm, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not saying this is the the best opening of 2018, but it's a nice addition to the area. Well, I read your article on it and I was like, oh, okay, because when I'm in the Galleria area, I don't want to necessarily go to the Galleria and find parking. Right. (laughs) You know, I'm certainly not going to pay eleven dollars for a valet. Right. I'm not going to do that. So. I find myself driving around and like, okay, there's really nothing short of me going all the way down West Alabama for some, you know, there's nothing in this general area. So I'm definitely interested and glad that there is something in this area, but you know, that's interesting. Right. I would say that if you are considering Houston's as a lunch option. And that's where I end up usually going. I understand. We all, we've all been there. And I like Houston, so no shade because no. I love it. But uh, 2840 at Duquesa would be an alternative to something Okay. Like I will definitely have to try it then. Similar price point, um, similar respect for ingredients and execution. That's, that's kind of what they're going for. Okay. Well, I'll have to check it out and I'll let you know what I think. All right. And then BB Lemon. The new project from B&B Butcher's owner, Ben Berg, opens Thursday, the day the podcast, this podcast is unleashed on the world. This is a casual concept for them built around, you know, burgers and sandwiches and kind of comfort food. Eric Johnson, who is the husband of B&B Butcher's sommelier, Lexi Johnson, is the chef. He had a I, I first encountered them together when they were working at that uh, that restaurant that didn't last very long at the Gallery Furniture out in Richmond. Oh, the, yes. The, um, I can't even remember the name. I don't even. Brick and Mortar Kitchen. Yes. Deep Pull. And then he did some stuff at Grand Prize, and he's kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, but Eric's a really nice guy. He's a, he's, good, he's a good cook with a good resume. And then the beverage director is... Monique Hernandez, who until recently was at Field and Tides, great, you know, she did great things with the cocktails yes, at, at F&T, and so I think that that bodes really well for for BB Lemon. Uh, Felice, let me, just, let me just throw it to you. Are you looking forward to this? I'm excited. I'm super excited. I'm going to go tonight for a sneak peek. I am... I, I will see you there. You'll see me there? Okay, great. I am excited about that burger. Just because B&B Butchers, I, I just have high hopes that they can knock a burger out of the park. And it's a great location. You know, we've talked about it. We were wondering what that space was going to be, what they were going to do. So I'm so glad to know that um, it's like more of a casual spot. I think it's going to be good. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, the menu is super affordable. Yeah. You know, the burgers are about 10 bucks. The sandwiches are similar. There's some... Seafoody stuff in the teens, but I, I think even the I think even the steak frites is like under twenty five bucks. And obviously, you know, B and B butchers, prime beef, dry aged, all that stuff. 
a much more expensive, right. luxurious experience. This is much more casual and accessible. Right. It it's makes it be, approachable, more yeah, approachable as well. Yeah. Totally approachable and open late. It's going to fit in real well. It's, you know, if you think about kind of what's in that area, you've got Julep and, uh, you know, Taco Deli for breakfast and lunch and the sushi restaurant that's going to replace Kukuri. And so, you know, that whole, and of course, Gus's Fried Chicken. So there's a lot going on in that part of Washington Avenue. And this just seems like a really good addition. And if you're a downtown office worker with in and out parking, which I know is, is always tricky when you work downtown, but, uh, it's, it's in your lunch radius, like real easy. Right. And B and B lunch. And speaking of B and B, they do lunch well in and out pretty quick. So I think, you know, they got that right. Like, so they understand how to get you in and out, um, so you can get back to work, park, all that. So I think where you're saying downtown lunch option, it's right up there. Right. And as a happy hour destination, certainly for, if you work downtown, you know, it's a, it's easy to get on a Washington Avenue, go to BB lemon, split some of those blue crab beignets and a, and a beer or two, and then, you know, let the traffic die down on I-10 and then go home. Get home. Yep. I agree. All right. And then, uh, our third new opening. So we'll call this 2C. Sing the Singaporean restaurant from one time food writer, pop up chef Cook Lamb is now open in the Heights. Felice, have you been to Sing yet? I have not been to Sing. The week I was going, I went out of the country. But even though I haven't gone, I've had Cook's food before. And everyone that has visited that I know, I'm jealous that I have not visited yet because I hear the food is outstanding. Yeah, I. I stopped by, interviewed Cook. She fed me some stuff. There's a stir-fried pork dish with uh, basil and green beans. It was absolutely killer. That sounds good. She's doing crab rangoon. She's doing Vietnamese-style imperial egg rolls, a light little Vietnamese salad, and a whole bunch of other stir-fried stuff. It's it's busy. It's it's off to a good start. They're doing a, a ton of business, delivery business via every different app that you can think of. She's very excited. And I just, you know... I think everybody saw Crazy Rich Asians. Did you see Crazy Rich Asians? Mm-hmm. See, <laughs> I see. I never see movies, and even I saw Crazy Rich Asians. That's how. You, that's when you know it's broken through. Um, and if if nothing else, that movie just makes you want to go to Singapore. Yeah. And so to bring a little bit of those flavors to the Heights, I think that's just that's just really exciting. And I'm looking forward to my next meal. It's saying it's it's fast casual. We should go affordable. Together. We should definitely go together. Yep. So, yes. So I just want to note that, that Sing is open and it's off to a good And I'm very happy for her. She cooks with so much passion and love. So, you know, couldn't be happier for her. All right. And then topic number three, I rounded up some of the new fall patios, some of the, some of the restaurants with nice patios that have opened over the course of the summer. Felice, did you, did you look at the list? Well, I had my own list. They were more like bars. Okay. Um, so. All right. I, so. So so I have one, though. All right. I so, don't know if it's on your list. No, go ahead. So far as restaurants, since you listed restaurant, it's Eunice, and it's not necessarily a traditional patio. It's kind of my kind of patio, though. It's real sexy, and it's not like you're in Houston anymore, even though it's literally like when you're there, you're kind of. Kirby's right over there. Buffalo Speedway. Buffalo Speedway. I'm sorry. Yeah. Buffalo Speedway. It's just grown and sexy, right? The furniture's nice. Yes. It's my kind of vibe. Yes. Eunice is on my list. And I'm totally with you. 
You have those big oak trees that kind of cover it. The building itself is set back far enough from the street that you don't really hear the traffic. Right, not at all. I didn't hear it at all. I no. sat out there for a while. And yeah. they've put some speakers out there, and they've got the music going, and that's kind of nice, too. And, of course, I've said a lot of really good things about the food at Eunice. And, you know, now that the weather's cooled off, people are just flocking to patios. One of the ones that – or two others that I just want to hit really briefly, Puccine, right? <gasps> Great scene, yeah. That great view of the downtown skyline. It's just such a it's such a nice environment, and I've you know I've enjoyed my my meals there. I think Dominic Lee is onto something. Yeah. I think that that menu is is very eclectic. I think it's kind of it's a little bit hard to know what to eat there. Yeah. Like in some ways, I wish it were a little bit simpler. Yeah, I, and it's but you notice he's constantly changing it. So I think he's finding his way with the menu right. and with the people. So I I have high hopes that it'll continue to evolve and people will get it because that, that as you said, that patio is killer. And then uh, the, the new St. Arnold restaurant in Bear Garden with yes. that, um, again, an amazing view of the downtown skyline from a, from a totally different angle. And, you know, just the, the food there is really good. Ryan Savaz is really, really onto something. And, of course, St. Arnold makes great beer and so and it's it's family friendly they have games it really is kind of choose your own adventure you can you can sit in adirondack chairs and have you know beer and light bites or you can you know belly up to a picnic table and like really sit down and feast but i i just think that that uh that space is really is really thoughtfully designed yeah it's going to be great for you know we're ways out but <laughs> the barbecue events and beer. Oh, 100%. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to have barbecue and beer out there. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Felice, I wanted to cut the news of the week a little bit short because we have a lot of restaurants to talk about this week. We do. None and eating. None bigger, <laughs> none bigger than Agricole Hospitality's three new concepts that have just opened in, in Edo, Vinny's, the pizza place, Indianola, which is kind of an eclectic modern American restaurant, and then Miss Carousel, their new cocktail bar that has some, some light bites of its own. Uh, Felice, we got, a, we got a sneak peek at all of this with a media preview over the weekend. So let me just put it to you. What, do you, what did you think of your... Indianola, Vinny's, Miss Carousel experience. You know, it's not even fair because they're not open yet. And I've literally already, everyone that I've talked to, like this is kind of my favorite new space. It hasn't even opened yet. Because I just think those guys get it, right? I've literally called them the dream team and said, feast your eyes on the guys that have changed the way we dine downtown. That's literally... Um, what I thought with each bite from Vinny's to Indianola to Miss Carousel. Each space is very thoughtfully um, done. They've thought about the food, the people, the ingredients, and, um, you know, some kind of things where they've gone into it where it's a concept that they haven't tried yet. They're hoping that it works. But I think it will work because it's them, and they've thought about everything else around it. So 
I'm excited. Right. We should say Agricole Hospitality, the company behind Cultivare, Eight Row Flint, Revival yes. Market, and Night Heron. Uh, certainly Cultivare, widely considered one of the best restaurants in Houston. Eight Row Flint, one of my personal favorite bars, a great bourbon selection, really good cocktails. Expectations for this are sky high. This has been about two years in the making since they signed the lease and about a year since they, or more than a year since they announced it. Let's just let's just kind of go one by one okay. through them briefly. Let's start with Vinny's, the pizza place. This is... Uh, the pieces are somewhat unusual. They don't conform to like a usual New York or Chicago or Detroit. They're these kind of oversized rectangular pizzas, 52 ounces of dough, which, you know, a normal pie cultivar is about 14. Yeah. So this is, this is like four pizzas. It's Texas sized pizza. Definitely. Texas sized pizza sold by the slice. So they're, you know, five bucks a slice basically. Or, you know, if you order a large to go, it's about $50, but it, but let me just say that I, I went there and had two slices and felt very satisfied from a, a hunger perspective. So, you know, if you, if you pony up for that $50 large, it's feeding, you know, six adults probably. Reasonably. Yeah, it's large. You know, the thing that I knew you would be excited because you're such a pizza guy about Vinny's. I said, Eric's going to lose his mind just when it was opening. I'm not a big pizza person. Like, I eat pizza, but I don't really get excited about pizza. But I have to admit what they've done with this pizza because the ingredients are so good and they don't conform to a style of pizza, right? Like, this is New York style. We're going to do this. This is Detroit. It's yeah. kind of a the, melting pot. Right. The closest <laughs> thing, it, it resembles Roman-style the, the Roman style pizza altaglio at Pizza Modus, but like just a, a bigger, fluffier, more dense crust right. and in and a, and a much larger form factor. So whereas I can put down, you know, a four, sli- four slice, you know, normal size Pizza Modus pizza, I, I would have no shot at four slices of the Vinny's pizza. And of course, the, the toppings are much more eclectic because because it doesn't adhere to that style. So right. they have like. They have one with Wagyu beef and ricotta that's basically like lasagna on a pizza. Right. And then they have like a traditional pepperoni. They have one with kale on it that, that we tried at the tasting. Which was outstanding. Outstanding. Surprisingly outstanding. Right. And I'm not a, a huge kale eater, but right. this was very good. Right. And then, but even let's just talk about the pepperoni. It was very simple. You know, I'm like, it's pepperoni. But they just knocked it out of the park. The dough... It's, it's just perfect, right? Like, you get that perfect crunch with the fluffiness in the right place. It's, if you like pizza, I'm, I'm telling you. And then let's talk about, in addition to the pizza, the beer and the wine program are not your regular beer and wine program going to a pizza spot. Right. A, a more sophisticated beer and wine program set up by the beverage director. Delivery beer and wine will be an option down the road once they get kind of all the details of delivery figured out. So if you live downtown, if you live or work downtown or live on the east side, this is exciting because there's not really like a good wine shop. You know, they, they don't have a, a wine merchant or a D&Q or, or whatever, or even, you know, Central Market. So this is where a person could go and get like a decent, reasonably affordable bottle of wine or like a cool six pack of beer or something to go with that. And, uh, 
you know, the other thing is they have these salads and sandwiches. We had that mushroom sandwich, oh my sandwich that's kind of pitched to vegetarians, but that was very satisfying. Right. It made me, I would be a vegetarian if someone said, you can, we can make this for you every day between that sandwich and that beet salad and that kale pizza and the yeah and this kale pizza i would be satisfied until i saw a big piece of steak but i would be happy it's it's amazing and let me just mention before we go on on friday and saturday they're open till 3 a.m yeah so for people who stumble out of truck yard which is right across the street <laughs> at two you have about an hour to get a slice before you call the uber to take you home uh, that also works for Chapman and Kirby. So I, I just can't wait to see the intersection of like, you know, <laughs> the college kids that are hanging out at truck yard with the dressed up folks that were popping bottles of Chapman and Kirby in line at about two fifteen right, at, right? at Vinny's. Yeah. I think that's going to be really great. Um, but yeah, let's move on to Indianola because you know, for, for all that the agricultural guys have done, they haven't really opened a restaurant, like a, a real restaurant since Cultivari in 2014. Correct. And so, again, I, I, I don't want to keep using that word, but high expectations. Coming into Indianola, they hired Paul Lewis, who has worked at a bunch of places around town. He was at Cullen's for a long time. He was at Austria Mazzantini after that, and then Paul's Kitchen. Uh, and then he's been kind of laying low for a little bit before he he signed on to, to this project. But, but Paul is a, a, a veteran chef, very experienced. Uh, talented guy and it's it's kind of like cultivari in the sense that there's some kind of main entrees but but a lot of shareable stuff too yes um the food i think it was so funny because the simple things were the things that we loved right like they have this i never really order chicken at restaurants i just have to admit that like if someone orders it i love chicken but i don't order it that this chicken and rice that kind of blew everyone away and we kept eating it no one Really expected it to be that good, not for nothing, <laughs> but it's chicken and rice. Well, and that's one of the things that Ryan Parra talked to me about for the article I wrote about these restaurants is they want to take kind of classic dishes, put their spin on it, and just do a really good version of it. And that chicken and rice, you know, good quality chicken, make the rice the right way, season the whole thing well, and it's comfort on a plate. Comfort on a plate. One of the other things that I think is really going to send Indianola apart is this bread program. Obviously, they're making all of their breads in-house. They sent us out a loaf of sourdough with just butter and salt. Really very simple. We could not stop eating it. I got to laugh because you had the bread, and I'm thinking there's all this good stuff. So I'm like, I can forego the bread. It looks pretty. Take a picture, whatever. And you saw that I was like, you're like, you get some bread? Because you saw I was ignoring the bread. I'm like, yeah, you know, you're like, no, you want to get some bread. And I couldn't stop eating it after that. I almost missed out. That bread was life-changing. Right, right. The staff is trying to do their job and clear plates, and we didn't really have room for, for the bread on the table, but every time they tried to take it away from us, we told them no. No, you can't take everything else, leave the bread. Right. So, And then, of course, they served us the big steak. I, I love a big steak. Uh, this is a very good version of it. It's a 60-ounce bone-in ribeye from... Strew Branch, which is a Texas Wagyu producer, just an incredibly beefy flavor, cooked beautifully, it's, you know, $150. Yeah. Obviously, that's a real splurge, but it's designed <laughs> to feed a crowd. You know, two slices of that, and I was I was perfect. I was per- I mean, and th- like you said, it was prepared. It was so beautiful, and just the way they prepared it 
we I think we didn't we, we had like a what looked like a butter knife because <laughs> it was just I mean, we could cut it with a butter knife. It was delicious and the presentation. I know that they're gonna you know they can do a table side. Well, at that point, they said at that price point, you decide. They're gonna bring it out, show it to you. Do you want a table side prepared? Or do you want to take it to the back and? Do it table side. You you will love the experience and will be happy because the steak is outstanding. Right. And then we had a couple desserts, everything, you know, they have a, a pastry chef. Everything's really, you know, that's off to a good start. Um, and then Miss Carousel, a, a bar without a bar without a bar. A bar without right? a bar. A bar without a place to sit and watch the bartenders do their thing because they want, it's more of a lounge feel. It's decorated with this eclectic array of kind of mid-century modern furniture that Morgan Weber and his wife, Julia, um, collected. And they're treating the, the bar like a kitchen line so that different bartenders are assigned to make different drinks and they work on those drinks. And so they come out uh, more quickly and more consistently than at other cocktail bars where a bartender is like, you know, taking someone's order and making three drinks at a time and, and cashing somebody else out. I mean, it's not that there aren't bartenders. There are lots of bartenders who are good at that, but not every bartender is good at that. Right. Some people just want to have focus on the service experience at Indian old, at, sorry, at Miss Carousel, they can be servers right. and some bartenders really just care about the, the, the drink nerdery, right? Like the, the craft of making the cocktail itself at, Miss Carousel, they can just focus on making drinks. So it's it's beautiful. It's it is. It's beautiful. I've labeled that my favorite bar. Um it's a new honeycomb spot for me. And I will say so based on what you're saying, if you're that person that has to go to the bar and you know, you do your Crimea River with the bartender, not the place you want to go. You may want to bring a friend with you, right? Bring a friend, make a friend at the bar, catch a couch, get a drink. You will be happy. It is that chill, right? Like the ch- the couches are comfy, and um, it'll be great for people watching. They have a patio. Talking about patio, right, right? They have a courtyard, a courtyard patio, secluded interior courtyard, right? So it's literally like if you have had a bad week, you want to get out of Houston, just go into Miss Carousel, hit that interior patio, get a drink, and all will be well with the world. <laughs> all right. And then I do also want to talk about Jonathan's The Rub, which has been open for a few weeks. Their new location at Memorial Green. Uh, Linda Salinas, who co-hosts the show, did their cocktails. She's been on. Talked about it a little bit. Jonathan Levine, the owner, came on and talked about it before it opened. But I haven't talked to anybody else who's dined there. So I sent you there. You did. Gave me an assignment. Get there soon. Get there before the recording. (laughs) What did you? I mean, you are you are very familiar with the original Jonathan's yes, Rub Memorial Village. Yes, I'm a Jonathan's fan. Yes. What did you think of this new restaurant? Because it's it's a big step up for them. So the space is let's just it's gorgeous. The space is gorgeous. Um, you know the menu. There are some of the favorites, right? Where the lobster tacos. You know, you still see some of your favorites, but I think that. Um, even still playing to the same crowd, just a different part of Memorial, a little bit more upscale. But I thought the food was just as good as as usual. One thing that I asked you that I was not familiar with, I don't remember gumbo being on that other menu. Do you remember them having gumbo? I do not. 
yeah, I, I think I would have probably tried it. And maybe I was so fascinated with everything else. I just have missed it all these years. But the new restaurant has gumbo on the menu. And we all know you are a gumbo super snob. I am. And I, I have to admit, because I'm like, there's gumbo on this menu. I, You know, I was hesitant because I love Jonathan so much. And if I didn't want to mess it up. I didn't want him to mess it up. I didn't want our relationship to go down. So I must say the gumbo was amazing. Like when I saw the roux, so when it came, literally my, I had, my heart was fluttering. Right. So dark roux, blonde roux, like what are we talking it's, it's, about? It's more of a blonde roux, right? Because it's a chicken and sausage gumbo. So, you know, that's usually a little bit milder roux. Um, but then when I saw it, I put the fork in it. And one of my friends, he's a gumbo snob too. He's has East Texas, Louisiana roots. So I was like, what do you think? He says, oh, that's going to be good. Look at, you know, I was lifting it up. The aroma was right. And it's really kind of more of that Texas kind of gumbo where we put a little bit more okra and stuff in it. The taste, outstanding. Now, before I give it my official stamp, because that was one time. So I always feel, I mean, was this like a one-time thing and it's not going to be consistent? I think Jonathan's been around long enough that it'll be consistent. But before I officially just say, OMG, I have to go back and try it a couple more times. But I would say if you're there, get the gumbo. Let Eric know what you think. Let me know what you think because I think it's pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will say I was really intrigued to try... Some of the Mexican flavors. He's doing a chicken and mole. He's doing a ceviche tostada. Like I'm not. I'm not saying it's it's the new Hugo's, but uh, I thought they were they were very well executed. And that's kind of who Jonathan Levine is, right? He's he's a very disciplined chef. He's very technique driven. He cooks, you know, he cooks from the heart. And, and didn't I, he go travel to Mexico? He did. And he spent work some time in, in Mexico and, and stuff a little. He well. did. He took some yeah. cooking classes. You know, it's a little bit like what Ronnie Killen is doing mm -hmm. for Killen's TMX, where, you know, Jonathan got excited about these flavors. He wanted to include them in his cooking. And so he went to Mexico and studied them. And then on top of all of that, the new Jonathan's The Rub has a, has a much broader uh, array of steak offerings. I mean, almost like a full oh, steakhouse. Yeah. And it's all coming from Meats by Lens, which is this really high-quality producer out of Chicago. Just really like one of the best veal chops of my life. So I'm excited about all of that. I think the space looks great. Uh, Eric Laird is there. He worked for Liberty Kitchen for a long time. He was at Ritual for a while. Uh, Jonathan's daughter, Jessica Levine, is kind of running the dining room. So still has that family presence, but in a, in a more upscale environment uh, with a complete cocktail menu. Linda's cocktails are always delicious. You know, I'm not just saying that because she's on the show. I'm, I'm saying that because <laughs> I've been drinking her cocktails for a long time. Shepard Ross did the wine list, so it's this it's this eclectic, it's it's reasonably priced. You know, obviously there's always some stuff you can go splurge on, especially in the memorial area. There are just there are people who want to drop two hundred and fifty dollars on a bottle of wine with dinner. And you and, definitely can. And, and you said. and you definitely can, and God bless them, and God bless them for doing that. But you know, if if you're like me and you you only want to spend fifty dollars on a bottle of wine, you can do that too, and you can you can feel comfortable knowing that the quality is going to be good. I agree. So, yeah, Jonathan's the Rub. Very excited about Jonathan's the Rub. It's Jonathan's the Rub Memorial Green. Yes, the original is still there and still BYOB. Uh, just to be clear, this one is not BYOB. This is a new location on Memorial 
uh, between Gester and the Beltway, uh, right next to Dish Society and right across the street from the Union Kitchen that's out Correct. There. So, all right. Felice, before you go, what's going on at Urban Swank? You know, just got back from Germany, so we got that going on. We have some stuff that we're going to be working on with Visit Houston. Stay tuned for that. Um, maybe some burgers and brews and just stay tuned. You know, we always got something up our sleeve. Right. And you're blowing up that swanky Maven Instagram account these days. You know what? I am because that's just kind of like the other side of me, my personality. So it's all beauty, lifestyle, and just, you know, the my swank stank. You know, my swank stank. All right. Thanks so much for being here. I will be right back with Kevin Maxey from Super Eagle. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Kevin Maxey of Superica, the new Tex-Mex restaurant that just opened up in the Heights. Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Oh, absolutely. I always like to start these interviews kind of at the beginning. So how did you, how did you enter into the culinary world? Wow. Uh, well, let's see. How far back do we go? Born in East Texas. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I started cooking right out of college. I went to TCU, got a degree in marketing, uh, knew fairly well by my junior year that I was not going to get any of the good jobs. I wasn't nearly as excited about marketing as everyone else. And so I started thinking a lot about, like, what am I going to do? I got to find something that I'm passionate about and uh, thought a lot about culinary school. And uh, back in that sort of day, it seemed like the only way to get into culinary school was with like a letter of recommendation. It was, um, this was 1993 or so. And so I just started working in restaurants with that goal of getting some good experience and applying to culinary school. And then just so happened to work for some fantastic chefs right out of the gate who talked me out of culinary school and just sort of started the journey. So was that in Dallas? That was in Dallas, yes, sir. So where were you working in Dallas? So, you know, right upon graduating college, I moved around quite a bit, just sort of a wanderlust kind of, you know, exploring the sort of West Coast and things of that nature, and then came back to Dallas uh, <clears throat> and started working at a little small restaurant, um, answered an ad that was for the, Bavar- uh, the Bavarian Grill in Plano, Texas. Um, Totally random, tiny little ad in the classifieds. That's how you found jobs then. And uh, after a couple of weeks, the chef, who was honestly a classically trained sort of uh, German chef, said, you know, you're way too serious about this. Uh, Here's the thing called the Zagat Guide. Why don't you find some sort of higher-end restaurants to go sort of pursue your craft in? And then I uh, landed a job at that time with the number one Zagat-rated restaurant, the Riviera, uh, under Chef David Holden. And that just sort of started a journey that sort of you know, stayed at that level for a bunch of years. And then you made your way to New York, right? Yeah, I followed the sort of dream or the self-directed apprenticeship, if you will. Uh, David had friends back on the West Coast, ended up in Seattle for a few years working for a Frenchman, Terry Rotaro. And then uh, at this time, Jean-Louis Paladin was going to open a restaurant in New York. And Terry happened to be friends with him and sort of made the introduction and made my way to New York. Uh, that didn't last too long and then started working for Tom Calicchio in New York. And that really sort of was the, the sort of next chapter of, of cooking. Worked for him for about nine years. Um, worth uh, Gramercy Tavern at the time and then went on to work in the craft restaurant world. Opened uh, several different craft restaurants with Tom. That landed me in Atlanta where I met uh, Chef Ford. Right. So when did you start working for Ford? 
Uh, let's see. This has been going on six years now, so it's been it's been a, a a little bit of a journey already. So, were you like at the Optimist or JCT or one of his? Uh... I, you know, we I had moved around a bunch with Tom opening craft restaurants, and we landed in Atlanta, and then and then the sort of craft world. Uh, we closed the Atlanta restaurant. It was sort of the bottom of the economy when the economy sort of fell out. Ended up moving back to Texas. Um, and doing some consulting work. I've got some family members that are in the restaurant industry, worked with them and just sort of took a step back and thought about what would it be like to sort of, you know, back off the gas a little bit and then had befriended Ford. And um, after a couple of years of, of, of in Tyler, Texas, actually, uh, we realized we were too young to retire and that we needed to get back into the uh, the mainstream of America. And so, you know, Ford and I had been chatting for a while about what, what I wanted to do. And he, we talked about, would you like to come back and be the chef of one of these restaurants? And it was like, well, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. And he's like, how about a corporate chef type role? And it was like, mm, I don't know about that. And he's like, yeah, I don't really want a corporate chef anyway. And so it was like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to open restaurants. And he's like, well, we're going to open a bunch of them. Why don't you move back and let's sort of figure out what your role would be in all of that. So I came back as a sort of um, an extra sort of high-end uh, person to be able to plug in anywhere. Um, and then we decided um, after a couple of openings to do Tex-Mex, and that's kind of become my baby since then. Right. So, I, I mean, obviously in Houston, Tex-Mex restaurants are all over the place. Atlanta seems like, I don't know, do, do people in Atlanta even know what Tex-Mex is? Did they know what it was before you, know, honest, you opened Super Rica? Well, there's, there's, you know, the sort of history of Tex-Mex is, you know, like, what is Tex-Mex? Is it Mexican? Is it Tex-Mex? So, like, I think there's, you know, confusion with that on, on many, many levels. Um, there are restaurants in Atlanta that are Mexican food that definitely have some roots in Tex-Mex, but I think it's, you know, there's obviously a difference uh, in the sort of, when, when we came to Houston, for example, when we were um, doing the same menu that we've done in Atlanta, people are ordering completely different off the menu, for example, because they understand the genre and they understand the dishes. And in, in Houston, I'm sorry, in Atlanta, the restaurant is almost like a, not a novelty. I mean, people have been exposed to it, but it's, it's sort of unique in that sense. Right. So let me, I, a lot of different angles, a lot of different ways to go with that. But so how did you, how did you develop the menu for the first Super Rica to kind of distinguish it from the Mexican restaurants that were already in Atlanta? You know, for us, <clears throat> you know, and I, I think I can speak for Ford, you know, because we've talked a ton about it. Um, it's really, Tex-Mex for me is really nostalgic. You know, the sort of cuisine is the sort of food that I grew up eating. Um, and I grew up in a, in, a, in a family that was heavily influenced by food, you know. And in East Texas, um, both grandmothers were fantastic cooks. My mom, a fantastic cook. And, you know... <clears throat> holidays were always a sort of big sort of foodie event. And so, you know, this sort of journey of becoming a chef in French restaurants took me away from Texas. But then every time I would come back to Texas and growing up in Texas, of course, it was always about let's grub on some Tex-Mex, you know, just that sort of comfort food. So there's this there's this memory or this sort of flavor profile in my mind of like what Tex-Mex is. And that was really the inspiration for the sort of menu. You know, when we were talking about opening Tex-Mex, people were like, 
whoa, I can't wait to see what you guys are going to do, you know, Chefy Tex-Mex. And we were like, no, it's not Chefy. It's, it's, it's exactly what, you know, like, what's the menu going to be? It's like tacos, enchiladas, fajitas. And they're like, no, seriously, what do y'all, you know? And it was like, no, we just want to, we just wanted to sort of do something that was like real pure and that reminded us and it was inspired by what we grew up with. But you sort of can't take away a number of years of working in fine dining and the sort of culinary sort of, you know, processes and techniques that you learn, um, you know, maybe we come at it from a slightly different angle because we didn't grow up in a Tex-Mex kitchen and, and don't really know how those dishes were, were typically made. So we had the flavor profile and we had culinary technique and we kind of had to just sort of figure it out. Right. So, so are there, are there, Dishes on the Super Rica menu that are made in like a French technique, even though there are Tex-Mex flavors? Yeah, you know, in a subtle sort of way. Like, like it was really important to me to like want to figure out how some of these dishes were made and how those flavors were created. So we started from like a more classic French technique and then it didn't sort of taste right. And so you look at these recipes or you kind of you gather this information and you realize like a lot of the recipes are based on gathering a ton of different ingredients and stuffing them all in one pot and turning it on high and just letting it sort of boil away and emulsify itself into a, a sort of, uh, you know, a smooth sort of finished product by just, by just sort of agitation. And that, that's not really classic French. So it was, you know, some of it like we do. Um, we do some things that I think are are rooted in 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 that more classic technique. We've got a short rib on the menu that, you know, we we probably without having uh, worked in fancier restaurants wouldn't have known how to get so tender and and so succulent. Um, you know, but but I think um, for the enchiladas and the tacos and the sort of core of what we're doing, it's just really stripped down. You know, there's. Um, it's just really ingredient driven. We buy nice skirt steak and we season it with salt and pepper and a little bit of lime juice and, and not much else. And so it's, it's pretty basic. So did you like when you decided to bring Super Rica to Houston, did you, did you visit and start like trying our Tex-Mex to get a sense of what it is people like about like what they, what qualities they like about the restaurants here? Um, you know, Ford grew up here in Houston, and he had his his sort of vision of what, what Houston sort of Tex-Mex was like. I grew up in Dallas and had a sort of a, a vision of Tex-Mex that was largely based on that. And it turns out, you know, there's probably more similarities than differences in the two. There's, there's other genres, I think, within the state of Texas. San Antonio kind of has its own style. And then I think there's probably a West Texas style, too. And, and, and so... You know, it was it was definitely let's go eat in a bunch of restaurants in Houston and see, um, you know, who's doing what. But there was, you know, most of the sort of recipes and dishes on the menu were created outside of the sort of that context. They were more created about, you know, what kind of dishes do we want to serve and what do, what does Tex-Mex mean to us? Um, and, 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 and sort of let's open a restaurant that represents that. So did you did you make any changes from the dishes that you were serving in Atlanta to adjust them for Houston at all or did you I think we did, you know, I think I think that we had to make a lot of changes um maybe not so much to the dishes but in our sort of the way that we thought about the restaurant because 
a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the training and a lot of, you know, what we talk about in, in any one of our restaurants is the sort of story behind what we're doing and the sort of meaning to, you know, the sort of the story of the cuisine and the history of the cuisine and, and, and things like that. And, you know, in Atlanta, nobody knows that story. But in Houston, you know, that story has been told and people have grown up eating that sort of style of food. So there was changes in that sense that, um, you know, we've 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 got to sort of think about what does this mean, you know, to people that already understand the cuisine. But for the most part, as far as the cuisine goes, we were conscious that it needed to probably have a higher heat level than it did in Atlanta. Yeah, that was the one thing because I, I visited one of the Atlanta locations in June. And I just like I thought it was like well executed overall, and you know the queso coated the chips properly, and the the tortillas are like pillowy and and fresh tasting, but none of it was spicy enough. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, honestly, that's that was that was some uh, some of the sort of same thing that we'd been thinking ourselves and that we'd heard, and and you know I don't think that we consciously uh, toned down the spice for Atlanta. I think just sort of coming out of the gate. Um, when we were doing a lot of the menu, um, you know, testing, if you will, that 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 that's just kind of where it ended up. That was the sort of spice level that sort of seemed like the feedback warranted. And then we never really stepped back and said, wow, this is pretty mild. So I think it was it was eye opening to sort of realize like, hey, when we're going to Texas, we need to rethink all of this. Are we really hitting it out of the park because we're going to go face some tough critics? <laughs> And and so how how are you doing with the critics? I mean, it's the restaurant. Are you are you pleased with kind of what yeah your, how it's performing? <clears throat> yeah, I think you know we've got two restaurants there in a in a location in the Heights where we thought um, we've got a La Lucha restaurant next door uh, to Superica, and it was a an area of Houston where we thought you know that there's plenty of old school Tex Mex in that area, but. It's a growing part of town, has been for a number of years, and we saw an opportunity there, and we've been really well received by the neighborhood. I think, I think, um, you know, it's tricky. Like Tex-Mex strikes a chord with lots of people. We've we've had, I've listened to several people uh, wax poetically about their opinion about our restaurant and every other restaurant in the neighborhood, and how. We're, you know, a lot like some of them and are really hitting some memory profiles and how we've got lots of room for improvement to meet their expectation in, in other areas. So I think Tex-Mex is real personal to people and people grew up eating it and they have their favorite spots. And that was something that, you know, my thing with Tex-Mex was always like, yeah, I've got these sort of institutions that I go to and that I love for nostalgic reasons. But at the end of the day, if a new Tex-Mex restaurant opens right next door to my favorite one. I'm going to go try it out. And if it's better, maybe I have a new favorite Tex-Mex restaurant. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know just for me, right. I have three or four Tex-Mex restaurants that are kind of in a rotation. And so I, I suspect most Houstonians are that way. So that, mm-hmm. so that you're getting some traction is actually a good sign. Cause it means people are giving up uh, a place they've probably been going to for years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's sort of cool to us. I think, I think one thing that's unique about uh, you know our restaurant um, is that when you walk into Superica, I think first and foremost <clears throat> you feel like you're in a Ford Fry restaurant, and I think that that is a sort of angle that we have 
that a lot of other Tex-Mex restaurants don't have. We, you know, there's um, plenty of fantastic Tex-Mex options, but but our sort of take on restaurant touring, if you will, or the style of restaurants that we that we open in general. You know, I think there's a high level of focus on design and, and feeling and music and sound and sights. And, and uh, you know, we've got, you know, a, probably a different take on sort of cocktails than most people, uh, your typical Tex-Mex restaurant. And just we just have kind of a different outlook on what a restaurant is in the first place. And at Super Rica, we just happen to be serving Tex-Mex food. Yeah, I think, right, there's a, there's a pretty sophisticated cocktail program that's maybe a little more polished than your your average Tex-Mex spot and just a kind of a level of refinement in terms of the design it doesn't it doesn't really look like a Tex-Mex restaurant exactly and I think that that's sort of unique that people can come in and be like "Mm, what is this this feels different this feels fresh and fun but then still have a, a, a meal that hits that comfort zone of what they were hoping for when they when they sat down and ordered a plate of cheese enchiladas. Yeah, and tell me a little bit about the brunch service because I know that's a big part of what you guys do. Absolutely. So uh, on Sunday, uh, Saturday and Sunday both, uh, we open up at 10 o'clock and we serve, um, you know, a sort of additional uh, additional offerings to the menu. We also offer the entire regular menu, but from 11 to 3, we offer about 12 additional items that are, you know, uh, brunch sort of based. We do... A lot of classic sort of scrambles like migas and, um, you know, chorizo and eggs. Most of those dishes come with, you know, a big pile of, uh, of refried beans and a stack of tortillas for kind of like make your own uh, breakfast tacos. We do a take on huevos rancheros. We do some really yummy pancakes and, uh, you know, we do a brisket sandwich. So we just, you know, some different sort of offerings and some agua frescas and stuff like that. And I mean, we, we should say this concept has been pretty successful for you guys. You've got a, a location in Charlotte, I think, and uh, mm-hmm. Nashville's coming. <clears throat> we've got we've got four in Atlanta, and we've got one in Houston and one in Charlotte, and then we're uh, under construction in Nashville, and a second Charlotte location. So, so do you have a sense of how many of these you'd like to do? You know, it's uh, it's a pretty popular topic these days at the Ford Fry Restaurant Group. I think we talk a lot about that. I don't know that we've got uh, a, a solid answer on that. Um, I do know that we really enjoy opening restaurants and that the sort of, um, you know, the the amount of work that goes into getting one right in the beginning and in the opening stages, I think is what motivates a lot of us. So the fact that we've got that opportunity to keep doing that, I think is, is, is exciting. Um, you know, we like picking cities that we like being in and that, that are fun to be in and that are fun to go to. And, you know, with, with Atlanta, Houston, Nashville, and Charlotte being kind of the cities that we've chosen at this point, we think there's room to open, you know, a few more, um, you know, seven, seven soon, probably 10, not too far after that. And then, then who knows? So you think this will not be Houston's only Super Rica? Yeah, it would, I would love to sort of, we, I would love to see a Super Rica expand uh, in Houston. I know that we've also got plans to do uh, additional non-Super Rica restaurants in Houston as well. And so um, we're looking at a uh, uh, sister restaurant to The Optimist coming up soon. Yeah, that's the I guess that's the Sawyer Yards project that's sort of quietly floating out, mm-hmm. floating out there. Mm-hmm. And then um, working with with 
our local real estate guys to find some more spots for Tex-Mex as well, for sure. So do you have a, uh, do you have a favorite dish on the menu? Like what, what is your Super Rico order? Uh, I would say at least once a day, I probably have a uh, skirt steak taco. Um, sliced skirt steak, a fresh made flour tortilla, a little smear of guacamole, and uh, some grilled jalapenos. I would say that's probably my go-to daily snack. Um, beyond that, I'm a huge fan of our uh, chicken mole enchiladas. I think our mole sauce turned out pretty good. And uh, the crispy tacos are pretty yummy, too. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I like your fajitas because I, I do think, I think those tor- you get the tortillas right. And that, half the time with Mexican restaurants in other cities or from, from other places, it's like the tortillas don't aren't right. They're, they're they're stale tasting. Yeah, it's you know it's uh, it's hard having kids, of course, that love quesadillas and and you know the tortillas that we make in the restaurant are are, are fairly labor intensive. And I'll be honest, I don't make those at home. Um, and to open a package of any other tortillas, the sort of the chemical smell that comes off of them, just opening the package, kind of makes makes you sad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and how often are you here? I mean, you're kind of dividing your time, I guess. Yeah. You know, we've, we've, um, I, I probably spend, you know, a couple of days a week sort of focused on this restaurant. And I would say at this point, I'm spending two or three days a week here. We've got a chef team and an operating team, um, you know, that we've hired locally that are, that are sort of running the restaurant. But I would say, you know, at least weekly or every other week, I'm here just checking in and making sure that the tortillas still taste right. Mm-hmm. And the queso. And the gotta queso. Got to keep the queso consistent. Indeed. Uh, well, Kevin, that really brings me to the end of my questions, unless you feel like there's some aspect of the restaurant that you're just, that, that you want to talk about that I, I wasn't smart enough to, to ask you about. No, I think it's been a fantastic uh, conversation and I appreciate all the great questions. All right. So I always wrap these up with something I call the lightning round. Uh, five easy questions, five short answers. Okay. So, Kevin, what's your favorite ingredient? Mm, salt. <laughs> what's the first band you ever saw in concert? The Beach Boys. Where is your... Uh, <laughs> what is your fast food guilty pleasure? Uh, foot-long chili cheese dog from Sonic. What is your... Uh, <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um I usually ask people who their favorite Houston sports figure is, but since you're from from East Texas, do you have a favorite Dallas sports figure, past or present? Well, I would have. I mean, I could just go with Earl Campbell on that one. That's a great answer. Okay. That's a that's a popular answer on the show. I'm sure. And then finally, other than Super Rico, where's your favorite place to get a taco? Uh, in Houston, it's probably me Sombrero, Thirty uh, Fourth and Shepherd. Lots of lard in that restaurant. Yeah, good answer. Uh, Kevin, give us the website and the Instagram and all that stuff for Superica. Uh, Superica.com. Super easy. Awesome. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.